0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. First of all, some news. As Cassia announced at the end of last episode, she's stepping back from the podcast. But excitingly, we have a new host, who's Eleanor Halls, who's with me now. She will uh, talk a bit more about her background and what she'll be doing on the show at the end. But for now, she'll tell you a bit about this week's guest, who is the biographer Hermione Lee.
1: So, Hermione Lee spoke about her career as an English academic, as well as her working on her biographies of Henry James and Virginia Woolf, among many others. And she also touched on the reputation of biography as a genre and kind of the misconceptions around that genre.
0: It was a really fascinating interview that I did up in Oxford, and we hope you enjoy the show. So, I'm here in Oxford with Hermione Lee. Uh, very kindly welcomed us into her home. Hermione, could you tell uh, me a little bit about your early life and where your, where your interest in writing first developed?
2: Uh, yes, I, I grew up in London in the 50s and 60s and went to London schools.
0: And your father uh, was a doctor? Right?
2: Yes, my father, who's still alive at uh, 96, is a, uh, is a retired GP. He was a general practitioner in central London. He was also a very good amateur cellist. Okay. Um, and my mother, who was pretty much self-educated, was a one of the widest-read people I've ever met. Um, and so I had a astonishingly privileged and cultured middle-class London childhood, going to operas and concerts and plays and ballet uh, and art galleries and reading non-stop. We didn't have a television, <laughs> so most of my life between you know, the age of sort of eight and 17 when I went to Oxford was spent reading books when I wasn't living my life.
0: And I was reading the, the essay you sent me um, on reading in bed. Did that have yes. sort of shades of your, this is, I should explain that, where, where that was your initial lecture? So reading
2: were... in bed uh, was my, what they call the inaugural lecture at Oxford, when you, when you get a chair at any university actually mostly you have to give you have to sort of display why you've been appointed mm-hmm. and you give what's called an inaugural lecture and mine was given in 1999 which was a year after I'd arrived uh, and it was called Reading in Bed and it was a, it was deliberately angled at women the history of women writers and readers because I was the first woman to hold the Goldsmith's Chair of Oxford. so I thought I should make a point of that um, and it was very much about uh, horizontal reading, the sort of reading that the under the covers women the do under the covers, or in secret places, or you know, early in their life, and often women, young women readers who didn't have the kind of encouragement that I had, which was that I didn't have to read in in secret. You know, it would have been thought it would have been frowned on if I hadn't been reading. Right. Whereas, there are quite a lot of women who who talk about the fact that they had to battle to find their their reading time. So, yes, I was reading all over the house on holiday upright in bed in armchairs (laughs) around the family table you know it was a reading household
0: and then you come and you study english at oxford and do you decide that you want to go on an academic route fairly early how does that decision Um, come about i
2: i never think of my life i i admire people who make tremendously clear decisions about their life early on which also rather frightens me i feel i've sort of fallen into things really um i actually wanted to be a an actor uh, for a long time I, a lot of uh, academics who were thwarted <laughs> uh so yes I, I went to Oxford I read English in the mid-60s I stayed on and did a I didn't do a, a DPhil or PhD no. I did a two-year graduate degree because um, I was very eager to sort of go and make, earn a living and right. make my way so then I got a a one-year post in an American university. In Virginia, um, was In Virginia, College of William and Mary in, in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a very extraordinary place. And this was a woodrow. Is that, is that Colonial Williamsburg? Yeah, that's Colonial Williamsburg, which is right. remarkable, sort of a, a kind of imitation or spruced-up 17th-century uh, uh, village, okay. really. Um, and you would be... Teaching in the Wren Building, as it was called, and ladies in imitation seventeenth-century dress would come in to see Thomas Jefferson's desk. <laughs> <laughs> really so. It was an amazing place because it was full of craftspeople. Actually, it was full of art workers. People okay. who were doing the thatching and the weaving, and right. you know. So I met a lot of extraordinary people, and I cut my teeth on you know big American classes. I was teaching freshmen survey sophomore survey course and a freshman introduction so I really had to you know having done no teaching before except grant a few graduate supervisions here um, so yes I, I I think I decided with my within my five years as a student here in the 60s um, that I wanted to just go on having something to do with with literature and teaching mm. but I, do, I don't I don't remember a point where I sat Sat down and said, "I am going to be an academic for the rest of my life."
0: And what were your areas of focus with your your early academic study? Were you looking at biography at that stage?
2: No, not at all, really. And and I think, um, I think in the sixties, uh, you didn't very much. Yeah. Um, it wasn't at all a academic subject, and that thereby hangs a tale. I think to, to have that sort of standoff in a way between academic mainstream teaching and, and biography, it's taken a long time for that to change, I think. No, I was tremendously interested in um, m- mainly, I think, 19th and 20th century literature and mainly, though not exclusively, novels. And a lot of women writers, though, again, not exclusively, so.
0: And where, more generally, have you seen writing with a capital W, your own writing, fitting in with an academic career? How have those, and particularly writing for a broader audience, how have those... Yes. Evolved.
2: Well, I started. I didn't. I didn't do uh, a, a PhD. I did a book on uh, Virginia Woolf. I did a book that came out in 1977 okay. called "The Novels of Virginia Woolf." So I suppose that would have been my thesis.
0: And PhDs were less of a prerequisite. At I was stage. the
2: last. I I got in just under the door. I I think I was the last of the generation that could. Get an academic career without having got a doctorate. I'm sort of slightly embarrassed about this now. I've got some honorary doctorates now to make up for it, (laughs) Um, but I certainly couldn't have done that now. Um, And I suppose what I've always, I suppose, right from the beginning, without articulating it, but I suppose what I've always wanted to do was teach and write about literature and talk about it in the public realm, Mm -hmm. in on radio or television or wherever or in reviews in the same voice I've never really believed in a sort of technical specialist language for literary criticism or literary yeah. analysis and I think I, I completely missed the boat in terms of sort of structural theory and you know I, it wasn't for me uh, I suppose I'm an old-fashioned liberal humanist. Um, and that increasingly drew me towards um, interest in the relationship between the lives of writers and what they're doing, uh, because in the 60s and 70s... It's the opposite it's, idea, right? Yeah, there was a kind of very strong... There was a strong line of um, um, the death of the author, as mm. it were, sort of deconstruction and, and structuralism, whereby the idea that you um, married or... Um, found a direct line between the life of the author and the work of the author was seen to be a sort of rather conservative bourgeois sentimental yeah. concept. I think. I mean, this is a lot of this is coming out of France, and a lot of it is coming out of um, high modernism. Actually, those those people like you know the great high modernists like Yeats and and Eliot I and mean, I've often uh, thought as well uh, who were very who who by the way were very keen on separating the yeah, the author I, from the work
0: i mean the thing i often think about the death of the author is that if the author is dead then the critic is king right because then you know it it, it is a sort of grandiose thing for for literary criticism as activity
2: yes i'm not knocking it because it's just a school of thought that i don't share but it certainly means that the the analysis uh, and the critic's control over the work yeah. can be dominant, yes, because you don't have to bother about you know, soft old concepts like intentionality.
0: And have you, in terms of, you say, not having a, a specialised language for talking about literature, have you ever faced resistance in the academy for, for plain speaking, as it were? For not- no,
2: I've been very uh, lucky and... Uh, And I have nothing to complain of. I think that the tussle for me, and it wasn't a very major tussle, was trying to persuade people when I came back here to Oxford after 30 years away from this particular institution, that biography and life writing um, were teachable subjects. And there certainly was a bit of leftover resistance there. There was a sense that it wasn't serious enough or that you couldn't you know how could you get your teeth into a um, a messy for a messy impure form like biography in the way that you could get your teeth into paradise lost
0: right okay and, and your movements then how long you're your william and mary and then you where do you move to yeah so
2: i did fa- i did five uh, it was five years at oxford in the second half of the 60s and then I went to America at the, f- the very beginning of the 70s. It was a very interesting time, mm. politically also, to be in America. And then I came back and that was the time when there were lots of jobs. There were lots of academic jobs.
0: Golden- because of expansion of our education. Yeah,
2: golden age, really. Um, so I got a job at Liverpool, okay. and I spent the sem- most of the 70s in Liverpool, which was fantastic. I had the most wonderful time there, uh, in all kinds of ways. Mm. And then I got a job at York, uh, and I was at York University for just over twenty years
0: and when you're a you know we've had other academics on the show but it, it uh, how have you been able to combine your your teaching and your your responsibilities within the institution with your own mm. writing around that well,
2: I think you've got to be quite organized okay and I think you've got to be i think certain things have to be sacrificed actually yeah so uh, I think I there have been phases in my life where I would have, I'd have liked to be gallivanting around a bit more, or be a bit more social, or be a bit more open house yeah. than I have been. Because you know, if you're trying to write books and reviews, and at one stage do television programs, and um, uh, and teach, and also do a certain amount of administration, then you've got a very full um, package. But I mean, I think I lived a, a very free, rich life as an academic compared with some of the things that are going on now. I was going to ask, have I think it's changed? much harder. I think it's much harder. I think I had a much freer timetable and a greater ability to fit things around what I needed and wanted to do. And I see, you know, mid-career or young academics now who are wrestling with a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of grant applications, a lot of... Um, yeah, administration work and and I fear for them because I, I want them to write their books, you know. Yeah. And when is
0: your your first venture into writing biography yourself? So you write the, the book on Virginia Woolf, which is criticism. Yeah, well, yeah. And then the Philip Roth book, which is
2: That's a tiny little book which I did in a series that the late Malcolm Bradbury okay. edited at a time when people in England didn't know all so much about contemporary American literature. It was the first
0: was, book on Roth in England,
2: it, right? it was the first book on Roth in England, actually, yeah. Um, and that led to a long kind of working relationship with him because I did the parish review interview with him and, and I used to read for him. I was one of the group of people that he would send, okay. me, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of penultimate draft to... So that comment.
0: so this is, what, 15 years post Port Noyce or something like that? How Yes,
2: he was in the middle of the Zuckerman books. Yeah. It was the early 80s. And
0: how big a Bigger name in American culture was he at oh, that huge. stage?
2: Yeah, yeah. huge. Yeah. I mean, the fame of Portnoy was what, in a way, so uh, was inspired his equipment books. How do you deal with yeah. that? As you know, astonishing global fame. Yeah. Oh, no, huge. And big here, too. But I think people weren't, you know, he wasn't a household name quite in the way that he... Yeah. He he became here, but so so that wasn't biographical really at all. Uh, I wrote a book on Elizabeth Bowen, who I'm a great admirer of, and that was that had some biographical aspects to yeah. it. And I wrote a book on uh, the American novelist Willa Cather, which I suppose was the first book that that developed some you know some more thinking about the relationship between the life story and the work.
0: Yeah, I mean I thought I was reading the the against biography. Passage that you sent, which I thought was very interesting about how there's a notion of that we have a biography as a kind of stentorian earnest art. And actually it is, you know, it's quite grubby in some cases. It's like, <laughs> or, you know, I or quite journalistic, or as you say, like what's that pithy line you have, like dragging the awkward sequence of the famous dead out or something like that. I mean that that I find a really fascinating tension. But I suppose what coming from a journalistic background, I wonder. Is it about distance, you know? Because mm. if ultimately, if if you're writing about someone who's 100 years old, you know, everyone's dead. Ultimately, no one can sue. Like it's <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of different from, I suppose, what say Tom Bauer does or something like that. Yeah, you know, the big the big doorstop yeah. there. so Well,
2: like, there's a lot of. There's a lot of different questions. In yeah, there. I suppose how grubby is it would be. Yeah. Question. So the so the thing you refer to is a chapter, um, a little tiny chapter called "Against Biography," which is part of a. Um, a book called Biography, which was published in the series that Oxford University Press does, called Very Short Introductions, and yeah. the idea is you sum up everything about a subject in thirty thousand words. These are very colourful books. Right? Yeah, they've yeah. got nice colour, rather Rothko-ish colour-coded uh, covers, um, and they fit into your pocket, and they're meant to be a you know a useful introduction to. I use them all the time, um, and it's hard actually they're quite hard books to write because you know you think it's going to be a doddle and actually compressing down everything you know about something you know quite a lot about yeah. uh, is is quite tricky so i thought it was important in there to give the attack on biography as part right. of the subject and and as you're saying part of the attack on biography um and it's always been the case uh is that it's squalid it's grubby it's wiristic Um, From Henry James to Janet Malcolm to Germaine Greer, people use the image of ransackers or burglars or people coming in and pulling out the drawers and throwing all the underwear out of the drawers. And and there's often, frequently, especially by creative writers, uh, attacks on biographers as a... Pretending to be tremendously earnest and high-minded and writing all these footnotes and so mm. on, and really all they're after is the scandal and the yeah, gossip. Yeah, yeah. And B, grotesquely simplifying the work of the writer, if the writer is say a playwright or a or a novelist or okay. a poet, by you know reducing it all down to the material of their life. Uh, and I think readers of biography, and there are lots have very mixed motives uh, in that you can be... They look like serious books, right? Well, they yes, but you can be... It depends who it's about, of course, but, uh, but you can be on the same page really genuinely interested in whether this life can give you an example of how to live your life, which is a good, you know, interesting motive for biography, or telling you about something you knew nothing about but at the same time you do want to know Mm. you know who they went to bed with and why and all that i mean i think we're all made up of very mixed motives all the time in terms of how we respond to input and where do you
0: regard the beginning of modern biography is it the big victorian three-decker or do you see
2: a oh no i think it comes before then with something like John Aubrey's brief lives in the right. 17th century or, you know, even actually you can place it much, much earlier with Plutarch, uh, Plutarch's Lives of the Greeks and Romans where you get these marvellous, scatless stories yeah. of people rising to great power and then dropping off the cliff warnings, often warnings but I think the thing really changes in the 18th century with Boswell uh, Bos- Boswell's Life of Johnson where you get a sort of democratization of the genre so a form that was supposed to be about the powerful the outstanding the Saints the martyrs the heroes the rulers becomes about you know a lexicographer for goodness sake I yeah. mean the, 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 the most famous English biography is about this rather bad-mannered smelly uncouth troubles uh, English man of letters. Yeah. It's a very unlikely biographical hero I and mean, it's a very very wonderful book because as Boswell says I want to do warts and all I want to do the whole thing I'm not going to pull my punches and I think that's where the form we recognise is is beginning and, and in a way the big the one you, the kind you mentioned which is the big three volume 19th century Victorian life and letters in a way that's sometimes a kind of aberration because it's so much more of a monument yeah. so much less of a living article than what came before that in the 18th century or early 19th century and what I think you now have which is well we can talk more about this but biography is a much more flexible form I think
0: is uh... And Little Strachey, another kind of turning point there. I, mean, I, I read Eminent Victorians last yeah. year and was, was slightly underwhelmed, yes. actually. Like, I, I thought he hadn't done that much research.
2: Yes. Well, no, that's part of the point, really. He's, um, uh, I, I and it know, wasn't as
0: rude as I hoped it was going to be, no, either. No,
2: I know what you mean. It's it, it's 1918, yeah. OK, so it's 100 years ago. And it's very much...
0: We should say this is uh, Eminent Victorians by... Reggie, yes. The
2: it's, a, it's four potted lives of four famous Victorians who include Cardinal Manning and Thomas Arnold, who was the headmaster of you know, rugby, and, and Florence Nightingale. And, and Gordon Ken. of Cartoon, right? And uh, Gordon of Cartoon. And what it's doing... I mean, it's slightly difficult to see now why it was so important, because one thing it's doing is cocking a snook at that kind of venerating hagiographies sort of turning famous people into saints as Mm. it were and whitewashing their their failings and and because the models are long gone nobody's reading you know the original lives of of those people Um, the parodic spirit of it has sort of disappeared we can't quite get it the other thing of course is that Strachey was one of the early take take takers up of Freud right. And so he also wrote a Life of Queen Victoria, which is sort of Freudian analysis of Queen Victoria, which is very interesting, actually, for the time. So that kind of way of making these big heroic figures somehow susceptible to repression and anxiety and neurosis uh, was a very interesting turning point. And again, it's really hard for us to see how how telling that was at the time because we're used to it. You know and also, yes, you're quite right. He appears to be quite sort of gung ho with his the bibliography, with his, is like
0: six books, yes. no, right? No. It's not well.
2: That whole thing about footnotes and bibliography that's quite a recent thing, really. It never okay. happens in the 19th century, you know. You never have you never have biographies with footnotes then. This whole idea we got to verify all our sources because we're so nervous about someone saying, Hey, they didn't say that, you know, that's that's a 20th century phenomenon, actually. Yeah.
0: And coming back slightly to this, the notion of the ransacking, I mean, is there a different skill set required? In that, I mean, perhaps to between, explain, what? between what? Between being a kind of literary academic and being a biographer. And to, to explain, the book I've just finished, which is about the army, I had a firsting fellowship up here at the Changing Character of War programme for a year and was interested, you oh, know, yeah. I, I had come at that from a journalistic background where I was very used to banging on people's doors and, and the sort of hustle piece, which I felt that was a... I didn't I had never spent time in archives or anything like that but I knew how to run down a lead and all this kind of thing and you know try and persuade people to talk to me and it seemed that that, that was very different from the kind of training that academic historians got and I wondered do you, do you feel that the biographer you know you're a bit more kind of out in the world than the traditional literary academic? Does it require a different hmm. set of skills? Who
2: is it who says that academics are just journalists who are getting their copy in 300 years late? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something like so that. So you're drawing a distinction between journalists and, and, and biographers and between academics. Which, which is
0: biography closer to do
2: you think? Well, I think that uh, as... As people have said, I mean, I think biography is a very peculiar form because yeah. there are some people like me who have had academic careers and are also literary biographers. And that, that's a little bit different from biographers like, say, Michael Holroyd yeah. or Claire Tomlin um, or Victoria Glendinning who haven't gone anywhere near academic careers. I was reading, um,
0: is it Robert Massey in the US, who who wrote these huge doorstopper histories of the Naval First World War, but I think he was a biographer of the Romanovs, possibly first. Mm-hmm. He'd, be, he'd be pretty old now. But yeah, are there multiple tracks that...
2: Well, I think that there's a, there's, a th- it's complicated. So yes, to answer your first question, I think that there is a link between biography and journalism. Um, but what you don't want to be doing as a biographer to put journalism at its low Mm. level is simply to be using the clippings and following the gossip there has to be more to it than that and it has to be a more serious and inward enterprise than that I think there is a relationship between biography and academic work for instance um, my husband has done a lot of literary editing for instance editing of Keats and when he's talking about trying to pursue a particular fact From an editorial point of view, um, from an editorial point of view about the the, the life of Keats, I recognise what he's doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it is not a million miles away from what I'm doing when I'm trying to hunt up something about Edith Wharton. Um, And, uh, you know, biographers couldn't exist without the people who've edited the texts, actually. We're very dependent on that. So, there's a standoff also between biographers and historians because historians often feel that biography is, you know, too individualistic and doesn't take account of the great forces. So I think biography stands in a weird overlapping relationship with journalism, with historians, with academic uh, critics. Yeah. You know, it partakes of some of the characteristics of all those things, but it isn't quite like any of them. And if it's too like any of them, it's going to be either too. It's going to be too boring and fact-heavy, and or it's going to be too light and um, sensationalist. You've got to be careful, I think. And
0: in your career, how did you end up writing these these kind of general or books that were aimed at a broader audience? How did you, with the mechanics of dealing with publishers, and did they come to you or did you go to them? How were how did these projects come about? Um,
2: well, I think I, I I think I got into biography as I was sort of saying earlier on, partly because. I was not I didn't feel very at home with what was happening with uh literary criticism okay. in the 1980s 1970s 1980s and I suppose in a way biography was a sort of retreat from that for me or an escape f- for me yeah. from that. Um I have I was asked to for instance by publishers to do the Life of Virginia Woolf, for instance, yeah. in, the, in the 90s. I, um, I was asked by one publisher to write a new biography of Virginia Woolf. Uh, the previous one had been by her nephew, Quentin Bell, mm. and it had been, you know, quite a lot of, uh, quite a long time ago. And I said, no, actually, I thought it was a ridiculous idea. There was so much in Virginia Woolf. And How many biographies
0: were there by that stage? Oh, I
2: can't count, but several, yeah. yeah. Uh, but his was seen, quite rightly, to be the, you know, the definitive one. Do
0: you use the word definitive?
2: Um, no, I don't like the word you know, definitive we had, we had Max Hastings yeah. on the
0: programme and he, he no, was very antsy. No, I don't definitive. like the dif-
2: but But in terms of perception, yeah. uh, it was seen as the definitive one. Um, and then another publisher asked me to do it and I thought, oh well, there's something going on here. It's the early 90s. People clearly think it's time for another one. Um, Quentin's came out in the... Early eighties, late seventies. Um, uh, so I thought, yeah, it would be, it would be timid to say no. Yeah. But I was very nervous of the enterprise, um, and you have to get over that nervousness and fear of the subject if it's a big thing. What were like you afraid that. of? Well, I was afraid of her, <laughs> uh, because she's she's so extraordinary. She's so intelligent. She's so unlike any other human being and also there are lots of problems with her too yeah. uh, and I was afraid of the myth around her which is a sort of myth that grows up around I have to say, you know, women writers who commit suicide right. for instance or, or or romantic male writers who die early I mean there's a sort of Shelley myth there's a Sylvia Plath myth there's a Virginia Woolf myth Chatterton um, all that kind of yes. thing right? yes yeah. uh, and that you have to take on board and think about it there'd also been a lot of different lines of thought about her since 1941 when she died um, uh, and I needed to take those on those on board as well the ways in which she yeah. had been perceived and 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 she goes on changing you know I mean Virginia was one of those writers who goes on changing for every generation yeah. so um, yes I, I did it because I was asked to do it actually by which publisher the, the uh, by Chatter. Okay. Who, who who have been my publishers um, for a long time. And how did That's the experience
0: of doing that compare to your preconceptions, your anxieties about doing it? What was taking on the project? Doing a biography for the first time, what was it like?
2: It wasn't the first time I'd written in a biographical way about a writer. Yeah. So I had a sense of how uh, of how that interested me and how that, that might be done. Um I I decided very early on with that book that it was very much about structure
0: okay.
2: um, because Virginia Woolf herself was so critical of and so wary of the form of biography she was very interested in it but she always felt it was hopeless that it you know that it left out what really mattered that biography could never somehow properly get to terms with the inner as well as the social life of the, of the person, um, although she lapped them up herself, she read lots of biography. Um, and because of that, because she herself was such a formalist and so interested in inventing new forms for her subjects, I decided to follow her lead, um, to take an, a clue from her. And so I structured it not as a completely straightforwardly chronological Birth, middle life, and death. You know, I structured it very much in terms of um, themes or areas of her life, and I tried to play that against the chronology. I mean, the chronology has to be there.
0: And were your publishers happy with that?
2: Well, they sort of took it, yeah. And and uh, and I think looking back, I mean, it came out in. 96 which is a very long time ago but I think there's been I don't attribute this to my book but I think since then there has been a lot more freedom in the way that people choose to shape the telling of a life because any way you choose to shape it is is artificial. I actually took my clue from something that she says in when she's talking about how she's going to write Mrs. Dalloway. So Mrs. Dalloway is a novel in which people are going along their gridded lives and the clocks are striking and they've got to get to certain things and do and they you know they go through London on this one day and they all and within that time zone of real time they're going all over the place in terms of memory and thinking about relationships and thinking about death and mortality all of that which is a you know, buried just under the surface but very much there and and she says how am I going to do this she says, it's going to be really difficult, I'm going to dig out caves behind my characters I'm going to sort of hollow out a space behind yeah. them and I thought about that a lot I thought that's just what I want to do I want to show her living her life but I want to keep hollowing out spaces so that I would have a whole chapter on reading for instance or a whole chapter on friendships or a whole chapter on illness and then keep then yeah. pick the plot up again and many was the time when I was doing this so I thought why did I why should I set myself to do it like this it would have been so much easier just to say and then the following week she had tea with Vita Satwell West again you know.
0: how long did it take Um
2: five years I took three years unpaid leave from York while I was doing it.
0: And were, were there still witnesses? But
2: biographies always take a long time. Were there still people who knew her alive? Yes, I just was lucky. I just caught the end of that generation. I mean, Quentin and Olivia, who just died, Olivia Bell, who's who died at 102, wow. um, uh, they were very much there. Francis Partridge, Stephen Spender you know, quite a lot of figures in that world. And so I went to see all these people and they had been telling their stories about Virginia Woolf for the last 50 years, all of which were written down as well. People like Isaiah Berlin. Um, And, you know, I just knew that when I walked out the door, they were picking up the phone to each other. There's another one. (laughs) And in a way, it wasn't so much what they were going to tell you because you knew what they were going to tell you. It was the tone. It was getting a sense of that period feel um, and, and also I learnt, I learnt doing those interviews, what you must never say. So I would go and see some venerable old ladies right. and, and they would say, you know, she killed herself, my dear. <laughs> and I, and I learnt never to say, yes, I know. Oh, really? If you say, yes, I know in an interview, it, it it completely shuts the conversation down. The person thinks, well, why has she bothered to come and see me then if yeah. she already knows everything? Yeah.
0: What is that old yeah, that old <laughs> trick borrowed from yeah. therapy of just not asking questions of just making statements? You
2: can't do that. You have to. It's it's very interesting the whole thing about witness testimony. I'm very fascinated by this. What you know because I'm working on a living person at the moment, and and my previous book was about someone whose family had asked me to write it was The life of Penelope Fitzgerald, and yeah. so everyone was alive, and I went to see. Everyone, And, you know, witness testimony about someone they've known, especially if they're very fond of them or very close to them, Brian is love. a very complicated yeah. matter.
0: I mean, I'm very conscious, again, especially from what I've been writing about, that I think it it's, it must be different with the biography, but I think it, a lot of it depends ultimately as to whether it's a good story or a bad story, whether it's success or a failure. And so my experience, if you if you're writing about an issue that went well, mm. everyone... It was everyone's idea. Hmm. If you were writing about something that went badly, it was all someone else's fault, and that I found utterly extraordinary. And this is a
2: very different um, this is a very different job from what I've been doing because I I haven't written the really demanding kinds of biography, which is you know the biography of Stalin or Hitler or Nero or something. You yeah. know, I've ne- I'm, I'm a literary and right. I come out of literary criticism and teaching literature i 've only ever written and would only ever write about people whose work I admire and think is worthwhile Well, I was going to ask do you, yeah. do you
0: see literary biography as a fundamentally different form than other biography?
2: Well, no, in the sense that if you're writing a life of Matisse or Edmund Hillary or you know gertrude jickle you've you've got to know about the work in yeah. the same sort of way and you've got to think about the relationship between the work and the life in the same sort of way but literary biography obviously you have the advantage that that they they are vocal and, and that they've turned parts of their life into their writing and so in a way you have this amazing opportunity to think about how the life relates to the work and also you're hoping that what you're doing is going to help to understand the work and to see why it was written, I mean that's sort yeah. of part of the point, so I think it has its own particular um uh qualities but i haven't done that thing that you were saying of of talking about someone whose life has been a car crash or someone who's been a you know catastrophically bad person in terms yeah. of the you know and I can see that would it's take the frame the same thing. On the... though. The Penelope Fitzgerald is a very interesting case in point because her life for many years was a it was complete messy disaster, right? it was just homeless and things like that. Absolute disaster and a real struggle. And it's very very interesting to think about someone who came out of a privileged middle class, rather genteel, professional, intellectual background plummeted down through those nets of middle-class life into serious poverty, yeah. and then came out of it after many, many years, late starter, around 60 when she got going, yeah. and was became famous at 80. So it's a
0: hopeful story, in a way. I mean, do you... I, when you talk about literary biography, I, I immediately thought of the, the John le Carre biography, Adam Sisson's yes. one that came out a few years ago, yes. which almost entirely avoided any discussion of the text. You know, there wasn't really any... There was a review that I read saying... You know, Le Carre's entire literary career has been getting people to take him seriously as a novelist, and now that's sort of happened and and yet there's nothing yeah you know it's it sort of it dodged the spying bit because he wouldn't talk about it and it didn't engage with the with the text that much is that just because when you're the first one when they're still alive it's it's all too difficult and too
2: I guess it's a choice yeah. i mean it's a big complicated uh very active dramatic life so I suppose that Adam Sisman decided that you know given he had a word limit he needed to concentrate on the events of the life I mean I that's not I come at it in a different way I mean for me writing about the work is as important as writing about the life so all my books for good or ill uh, have got a lot in them about the writer's work I can't see the point otherwise because that's kind of why I've come to it yeah. so it's a choice you know uh, I remember Claire Tomlin did an, a nice life of Catherine Mansfield a long time ago um, but she made the choice that she wasn't going to write about the work and I, I remember reading it and thinking well you know I love this story but I'm really frustrated because yeah. I would love to know what what she had to say about about the work but that's me I mean the other
0: example that comes to mind thinking about that is is Hemingway's boat do you know this book that came out a few so Hemingway had had seven full-length, like, doorstopper biographies. You know, Carlos Baker did the first yes. Life in the 60s. There'd been the obligatory, highly psychoanalytical one. Yeah. You know, there would be... An, they'd, everything had been done. And then this American writer... I can't remember his name, but he thought, I'm going to write about Hemingway by writing about Pilar, by writing about the cabin cruiser that he bought when A Farewell to Arms was published, when he first had money and everything like that. And it's the story... It's not a big book, it's a slim... It's a number very highly praised in the U.S., and I thought, I mean, because certainly for me, the prospect of like waiting as biographer number eight or something like that would be just,
2: you know. I think it's interesting. I think there's a very, very different feeling about the about the operation. If you're coming in uh, to if you've chosen to write a life of someone who has been much written about. Uh, or if you are asked or have chosen to write, as it were, what is the very first one or nearly the first one. Um, And I've had both experiences. So it was clear to me that when I was writing about Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf that I wanted to write, I think all biography is reactive actually, but I I wanted to write the biography I thought was needed then, i.e. the one that I hadn't read. I couldn't find it, therefore mm. I wrote it, as it were. So the one about Virginia Woolf was written clearly in reaction to a line of thought about her, which, in my view, somewhat infantilised her. Which was very much about illness and was very much about childhood abuse, and 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 wanted to read all the life and all the work in terms of the kind of damage that had, you know, that there was in her life. And I, I wanted to read her as I fantastically professional active strong um, uh, politically interested involved with the world I didn't want to keep her in the cradle as it were in, in that way and with Wharton it was very clear to me what I what I wanted to do which was that she was entirely American oriented obviously you know she writes about America all the time and the, the the prize-winning RWB Lewis book was it was Really massively focused on the american life when had American that been published? connections that was published in the fifties okay. i think sixties and i I just wanted to write the European Edith for yeah. this is a woman who is in love with france spends did, dedicates her life to France in the first world war lives and dies there can
0: we can we talk about the chapter you sent me so this is a good oh, okay. chapter the, the henry James chapter in, yes. which were these fascinating accounts of sort of 1906 motoring around France. Yes, in the
2: Panhard saw. <laughs> yeah.
0: But could you could you tell me a bit about, you know, process? How is that pulled together? Where is that material coming from? And I suppose the other question about would be about the use of narrative, you know, what are your feelings about that? But but maybe on just, you know, the mechanics of pulling that mm. chapter about things yeah. together. So,
2: that's a chapter called The Legend, which is about um, Wharton's friendship and literary relationship with Henry James. Mm-hmm. Um, in a big within a big biography of Wharton. What I wanted to do, by the way, with that biography, was to make it like a sort of series of richly furnished rooms because she was such a material girl and she was so rich and so involved in possessions and decoration of houses and building her own houses and gone so I wanted each room to be like the sort of big well-furnished room you were going to so this was the Henry James room I was also very aware that there isn't a single I can't think of a single book about Edith Wharton or a single essay on Edith Wharton that doesn't at some point compare her with James yeah. um, and she got very impatient with this when she started publishing and being well known one of her friends wrote to her and said have you noticed you were referred to the other day as the masculine Henry James okay (laughs) she thought it was very funny so I wanted to describe the fact that when she started out he was the big name you know he was the the what was the age gap um so uh yeah it's about 20 years um and he was the world-famous legendary writer, and she was very shy of him. And then she made her name and made a fortune. She already had She bought
0: this car from her book. Yeah house, yeah,
2: house of Mirth, 1905. And what is it? So she, Huge she, success. So this is just at the time when he's having a terrible time with the republication of his work in the New York edition. It's a, it's a terrible failure. He doesn't make any money. Mm. And and somebody says... Uh, she's, somebody tells this story. She says, with the proceeds of... of um, Of my last book, I bought this car. And he says he bought a wheelbarrow. Henry James says, With the proceeds of my last book, I bought a wheelbarrow which I wheel my guests' luggage from the station to my house. With the proceeds of my next book, I shall have it painted. (laughs) And he did feel that. He did feel that she was this kind of rather brash, big public figure. Um, And she felt very impatient with the late Henry James style, the convoluted, Mm -hmm. involuted, indirectness of it. She didn't like it. So broadly speaking, I think the difference between them was that she was a much bolder, more direct More cutting, more satirical writer.
0: And was that primary source or secondary source? Where where were the you know the yeah where did the the material material all come from?
2: Oh well, I pieced it all together. It's like a great big mosaic. So a lot of it comes from reading books about James. Um, A lot of it comes from looking at letters. A lot of it comes from anecdotes, which are published in all kinds of scattered places. so you piece it together and one of the peculiarities of biography and the Wharton books are a good example of that is she knew a million people. Mm. So how far do you go? Do you go into the lives of all these other people? Yeah, where do, to stop, find, right? where do you stop? Where do you stop? It's very difficult. Yeah. And one of the things that's very interesting, and you will know this too, is that very often the, the best source is not when people are writing to each other, or writing directly about, about someone but when it, you go one step sideways yeah. so I found some fascinating material about her in the archive of Bernard Berenson's villa in Italy okay. Itati where there were all, there are f- shoeboxes of files of all the people that Berenson knew and they're often writing to each other and she will come up because she was often there and you'll get someone saying something about her and of course people say things about other people that they wouldn't say to them yeah.
0: How do you organise your research materials? Do you have a secret method?
2: <laughs> if it was secret, I wouldn't tell you. Um, lots of different ways. A lot of it's, lot of it's on the computer. Yeah. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it is photocopies of materials I've been sent or have found. Um, notebooks, actually. Yeah. I keep a lot of notebooks, and I just have to try and remember where all these different things are.
0: And what also sprung to mind when I was reading that is, do you know the Anthony Burgess novel, Earthly Powers?, Which the read sort of fictionalized *Return of the Life of Sunset Moore*, which has a Henry James cameo in mm. him kind of pitching up mm. around it's very time.
2: interesting that I I think I yeah I had a great admiration for Anthony Burgess I overlapped with him reviewing on the pages of The Observer and there were all kinds of amazing stories about how that... people would send him the, the wrong book for review and then they'd send a apology saying I'm sorry I sent you the wrong book I meant to, to send you this one by which time he would have sent the review of the of the wrong book already you know by return he was an amazing phenomenon living in a camper line in Monte Carlo yeah amazing but um I think fictional versions of real people yeah both in plays and novels are very illuminating and interesting.
0: Okay. Well, and what about narrative as a you know you do you do you write as narrative usually or what's your thoughts about about doing that?
2: I think it's incredibly important to tell a story that people will be wanting to follow and yeah. will become hooked on. So I want to I couldn't ever write fiction but I want um, I want my biographies to have a sort of storytelling power if possible.
0: And we always ask uh, every guest we have about money and how it fits with their their writing lives. Have you... I mean you've been employed in academic jobs throughout your career. Have you made appreciable sums from your from your writing? Do you know... No,
2: no. I mean I, I case in point is uh, is the Virginia Woolf um, biography, which I took I took three years unpaid leave yeah. from my academic job in York in order to get it done. Otherwise, I would never have got it done. So I lived off my advance. Mm. Uh, so that was my income for those three years. So it's taken me a very very long time to. ...earn back anything from the royalties. I mean, I, I'm proud to say that I still do. And yeah. that small royalties arrive periodically from that book, but they wouldn't be enough to... to but you got in. a sizeable advance. I, that was the era of quite big advances. It's yeah. got it's gone that, really, now. People are not... Publishers are not, for obvious reasons, paying out yeah. large advances for big biographies. Um,
0: Although they do sell, right? In, in yes, points,
2: they yeah. do. Um... I mean, a life of Penelope Fitzgerald is not going to sell like a life of Mick Jagger, yeah. you know I mean, this is, I, I write about people who are, I'm, you know this is not a huge audience that is interested in Penelope Fitzgerald or Edith Wharton or Willa Cather, yeah. they're people like me, you know, they're, they're they're readers who have particular literary interests, this is not a great big wide audience so, yeah. but I but because I've been very lucky and I've had a a regular income. I that's an indulgence I can allow myself sure. to spend a long time writing on a figure, a, a, a book about whom is not going to sell in huge numbers.
0: Would you do someone who is alive?
2: Yes, I am at the moment writing a biography of Tom Stoppard.
0: Okay, and how did that? Were you approached by them or?
2: Yes, I was asked.
0: Okay, and how is this the first time you've done a living subject?
2: Yes, though Penelope Fitzgerald was someone I knew uh and had interviewed and her older daughter and her husband who were the executives came and and asked me to do it so that was quite a close connection
0: yeah i mean there are innumerable examples of these relationships going terribly wrong right when you're asked to come and write about someone who's living or things like that how do you navigate those waters
2: uh, there's a very interesting story about Samuel Beckett okay. saying to his first, I think she was his first biographer, Deirdre Baer. <laughs> Beckett, rather Beckettianly, said to her, I will neither help nor hinder. Okay. Um, and that's a wonderful example of the sort of, you know, that, that kind of the edginess of the relationship. Yeah. Um, well, you just have to hope for the best.
0: Because I was reading, I think, about Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone, who had an authorised biographer, and they fell out spectacularly right. at some point and, and what's the relationship do they do they have copy approval to use a very journalistic term or? there's
2: an interesting book by ian hamilton yeah. um uh which is an example of the falling out that you're describing you
0: mentioned this with um nedian right that, is it, no, no this no is bit. a
2: different story so um so ian hamilton was going to set out to write a life of salinger which is quite a Challenging thing to do yeah. because um, Salinger was probably one of the most reclusive and self-protective writers there's ever been. Up
0: with and
2: yeah, maybe even more so. I don't know. Doesn't stop you being written about, of course. Um, and Salinger read the typescript and, or even maybe even didn't read it, but heard about it and took ian hamilton and the publishers to court and stopped the book and then uh, hamilton wrote a brilliant book um, in many ways i mean it wasn't the book you wanted to read you wanted to read hamilton's life of salinger but what he wrote was a book called in search of jd salinger which was about um the whole problem and so the the case in point, became the subject of the book, which is a fascinating example. The other one you're talking about um, is that Nadine Gordimer, of blessed memory, um, asked, uh, commissioned a biography um, from a a guy called Robert Suresh Roberts. I think that's right. And um, she didn't like it. Okay. It had a lot of quite revealing and critical material about her and she tried to she withdrew her authorization mm-hmm. from it um, having tried to ask him to take things out and the, the English and UK the UK and USA publishers then, I'm trying to get the story right then said okay well we're not going to publish it because it's not authorised And so he had a South African publisher publish it. He was, I think, South African. Mm. And then they shipped copies abroad, so one could read it anyway. And within the book, he then put in a lot of material about her critiques of what he'd done. And and I must say made a very sort of fierce point about the fact that she herself had been so opposed to apartheid uh and to the kind of censorship of work that went along with apartheid but here she was trying to censor him at which point nadine gordimer held a dignified silence in the hopes i imagine that her work would outlive his
0: well that seems a excellent note on which to end thank you for being such a a gracious and candid guest no thank you it's Um, really interesting to have this conversation thank you very much indeed hello it's us again uh I'll give the update from my life in a moment, but first of all, introducing our new co-host for the podcast, who is Eleanor Halls. Eleanor, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Thank you. Uh, Yes, so I'm currently British GQ magazine's senior staff writer. I've been here for uh, three years now, and I uh, write long reads and profiles and comment across the magazine and the website. Um, Sadly, this is actually my last month at GQ, because next month I join The Telegraph, Um, as their commissioning editor across arts and features which is exciting
0: so really exciting to have uh, Eleanor joining us on the podcast and you'll hear more about her in weeks to come Uh, from my side I've been slogging on my book and I'm about to go to Kazakhstan to write a piece for business week so uh, usual usual Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acombe.
1: And me, Eleanor Hall.
0: Our producer is Nicola Keane Zara Hankier handles our social media. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, And our graphic design is by James Edgar.
1: You can find us on all manner of social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter or at Take Notes Always. Uh, and you can rate... Uh, and subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes.
0: And if you feel like chipping into our crowdfunding campaign, that's at patreon.com slash